How should a disciple of Jesus Christ care for their health? In this episode of Physically Spiritual, I'll explore how science informs our life as believers. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. So this episode of Physically Spiritual is going to bridge a bit of a gap. We've just finished a series on fatherhood, and I'm moving into a series about food. But before we really dig deep and go deep into the topic of food and how it relates to our faith, I thought it would be helpful to have a bit of a, a groundwork laid for that. And so I want to talk a little bit about I've, what I've referred to in the past as a Catholic worldview. And this will link back to the first three episodes of Physically Spiritual. So we're going to touch on some of those topics again, and we're going to, to pull them a little bit deeper based on everything we've learned over the seasons. So the, the first question I want to pose is, do we as Catholics have an obligation to be healthy? Do we even have that obligation? Is that something we need to worry about? Or is it something superfluous? Is it just icing on the, the spiritual cake in our lives? So this is from the Catechism, paragraph 2288. The Catechism states, Life and physical health are precious gifts entrusted to us by God. We must take reasonable care of them, taking into account the needs of others and the common good. So the Catechism there is stating that we must take reasonable care of them. Now, it's not absolute care, reasonable care. So we, we have this, uh, this kind of uh, almost like commandment to be healthy, but on the other hand, it's a bit tempered, right? It isn't an absolute value in and of itself. It isn't at all cost. It's a reasonable effort. The next paragraph of the Catechism states, if morality requires respect for the life of the body, it does not make it an absolute value. It rejects a neo-pagan notion that tends to promote the cult of the body to sacrifice everything for its sake, to idolize physical perfection and success at sports. Right, So we have this moral requirement to respect our own life. This, in a sense, right to life that the church emphasizes so much is also a responsibility for us to live well. So that requires for the care of the body, but it's not an absolute value. This means that while it is a value, it is a good, it's a good that's for a deeper value, for a higher value, for something else. And this, I would propose, is our vocation in life, our duty to the Lord. And we'll dig in, into that a little bit more in a bit. But I want to pause a bit on what this quote mentions, the cult of the body. What's a cult? You know, a cult is just an, it's an organized kind of form of worship or, or a formula of a way to respect the divinity. So if it's a cult of the body, what it means is that we're making our own body our God. We're making it an idol out of our physical health, our appearance, our well-being. And it, it mentions here, it defines it as sacrificing everything for its sake, right? Sacrificing everything else for the sake of our body. Think of how would we do this? It might look like sacrificing the good of our family or, or a higher value like, um, like our mental health for the sake of our physical health. And it also mentions idolizing physical perfection and then also success at sports. So this idolization of, of the perfection of physique or the idolization of, of success, being the, the champion at all other costs. 
And as I'm talking about this, hopefully it's kind of running through your mind the ways that our culture in many ways does idolize these things. What's put on the cover of magazines, what's held out as the great example, where do the vast majority of people go and worship on the weekends and evenings, right? They go to the sporting game. You know, in, in, in a city like, let's take Columbus, Ohio, they fit over 100,000 people in their college football stadium, and it's full every week. But I bet there's not that many people that are attending the churches in town. Right? So we're, we're revealing by our actions what we're worshiping in our culture, what we're idolizing in our culture. So as believers, we have this requirement, this responsibility to care for our body. But how can we be sure our concern for our health is reasonable and that we're not making it an absolute value, that we're not participating in the cult of the body by trying to perform this moral duty? And I would say all of this is, um, is sort of tempered and controlled and directed by our, our understanding of vocation, that our life has a certain calling on it, a certain duty on it. As believers, we're given the gift of faith. And the virtue of faith, the theological virtue of faith, has, has an interesting effect on our intellect. Because what the, the, the theological virtue of faith does in our intellect is it, it redirects our end. So let's say our, our natural end as creatures, as rational animals, our natural end is towards survival, the continuation of our species, and then the, the excellence of us as, as persons. Right? So we're, we're trying to avoid death and we're trying to live well. And then we're also trying to give life to others. But our virtue of faith then also then directs that and redirects all those ends toward eternal life, toward heaven, that we're not living for this world, we're living for the next world. So this, uh, this uh, instinct towards survival is then redirected toward uh, making choices toward eternal survival, toward heaven, which isn't just the maintenance of physical health, but then focuses on the reliance on on the divine life for spiritual health, right? It redirects this instinct of ours to live well, these natural virtues that we're called to, the cardinal virtues, and provides a new end for them that when we're being prudent, when we're being just, when we're being temperate, we're not just making choices about this world, we're making choices about the next world. And then finally, when we're, we're bringing new life into the world, when, our, when we're spreading our species, it's not just a good in and of itself, but it's actually a proliferation of God's goodness in creation, that we're, we're, we're bringing forth new life, we're expanding our species for the, the betterment of all creation, and also for the expansion of the kingdom of God. So the virtue of faith changes the end of our life of virtue toward a life of discipleship. So this is our, our kind of foundational uh, calling that directs all of our choices as believers. And, and this virtue of faith directing the end of our life is going to provide sort of a foil or, or a filter by which we're taking all of this uh, wisdom about how to be healthy that we receive from our culture and we're able to interpret it through that lens. We as believers, though, are also given a vocation as a way to give life. Right? Some are called to marriage, and we're called to give life in marriage. Some are called to give life as a celibate, as a priest or a brother or a religious sister or somebody that's consecrated and given to a single life for the Lord. 
So everyone in God's kingdom is called to a vocation where they're, they're giving life into the world. And the reality of that vocation is going to direct and, and affect our decisions on what, uh, what we do to be healthy and how much energy and emphasis we can put on it. So let me give you some examples from my own life. This, this podcast grew out of my, um, my journey for health and how I realized that connected to my spirituality. And with that, I went on a weight loss journey and I'd lost about 200 pounds leading up to when this podcast started. But just recently, this last year, we, my wife and I were blessed with the birth of our first son. Right, So the lifestyle that I was living when we didn't have a child and I was focused on really changing uh, the composition of my body so that I wouldn't prematurely die, that I would be able to have energy to, for my job and energy for uh, my life at home. Right, I, I made certain choices in that time about how I was going to eat and how strict my diet was going to be and how I would exercise and how strictly I would enforce that exercise in my life to now having, having our son, right? And, and there's a shift of emphasis now where my, my diet is different, the way I exercise is different. And all of this is because there's, there's a reordering of the values of my life, not just on a natural level, on a supernatural level, because right? I have a, a duty to be present, to love him well, uh, to, to live a life that's not disrupting our family life, uh, to teach him a, a, the way of the Lord, now at this young age, the only way I can teach him is by example, by the catechism of my body, by the way I love him, the way I treat him, the way I speak to him. And then later I'll have the opportunity to teach him by also teaching him concepts and words and forming him intellectually. So our vocation in life then directs the specifics of how we apply our knowledge around health. One we're discovering uh, what we should actually do, though, if we were entering into the world of, of study around health, maybe listening to different podcasts, reading different books, maybe just seeing the news articles that are out there about what scientific studies mean about being healthy, we're confronted with the fact that it's often difficult to discern what to do, how to discover the, the truth. And I think it's helpful to acquire a Catholic lens to read all of these things. So I'm going to build this out a little bit now. In this Catholic lens, we understand God through the transcendentals. God is the true, the good, the beautiful, and the one. So when, when God creates, we had to expect to see basically truth, goodness, beauty, and unity in his creation, in his design, and how that's played out in his providence throughout time. So when we a, a, approach nature, when we approach uh, science, we understand that the same God who's revealing himself in the scriptures, who became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, who speaks to us throughout time and revelation and in the magisterium of the church, that same God is the same God that created the universe. So the same truth, goodness, beauty, and unity that we experience um, through revelation, we should anticipate experiencing that in what we discover in nature too. This is what the First Vatican Council said. Although faith is above reason, nevertheless, between faith and reason, no true dissension can ever exist, since the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith has bestowed on the human soul the light of reason. Moreover, God cannot deny himself, 
nor ever contradict truth with truth. So we as Catholics approach science, approach the natural world with a a confidence, right? That what we'll discover there isn't going to contradict what we know through revelation. When we think about this, though, it's important to uh, consider different levels of theological knowledge, different levels of understanding of revelation, because we have the, the basic sort of God communicating himself to us, primarily through the scripture, through the Bible, and also through tradition, through the, the really the, the Bible grew out of the tradition of the church, but then there's things in the tradition of the church not explicitly stated in the scripture, and then the way our understanding and interpretation of scripture has uh, progressed over time as theological knowledge has progressed. Right, so there's this basic revelation, and from this revelation, the church has defined certain doctrines or dogmas, meaning there's certain things that we can understand in particular by applying philosophy and other sciences to the scripture, and then the church has clearly defined uh, certain doctrines and dogmas based on these understandings. So an example of this would be the fact that Jesus is fully divine and fully human, right? That, that he is fully God and fully man. It's not 50% God and 50% human. It's not he was kind of like human to start and then became more and more God as he went on in his ministry. But from Jesus' whole life, from the time he was conceived in Mary's womb until today, as he reigns in heaven, Jesus is simultaneously fully God and fully man. This is a doctrine of the church. And, and these doctrines, once they're defined, do not change. Our understanding of them may progress based on current situations, meaning the way that the, the doctrine is applied uh, now might be different than how it was applied previously because of different circumstances, but the teaching itself remains the same. On the other hand, we also have, in our understanding of Revelation, theological opinions. Meaning there's all sorts of things that the church hasn't defined as doctrine or hasn't defined as dogma. You might simply say any understanding of the church that's beyond the realm of the catechism or what the church has proclaimed in any of its authoritative teachings, right? These are realms of theological opinion. So we as believers might be in a community of people in our parish or an online community or something like that, that holds a whole collection of these theological opinions. And as believers, it's important that we hold our theological opinions loosely. That when we're we're approaching the way we should live, when we're encountering scientific research, that these theological opinions um, might not be true or might not be the best way to think about the way our faith is revealed to us. This is what um, St. Thomas Aquinas says in the Summa Theologia, actually quoting St. Augustine. So when you have St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, two of the great pillars of the tradition, saying the same thing, it's always worthy to listen to it. So he's talking here about interpreting Scripture, but in light of understanding through reason. He says the first is to hold the truth of Scripture without wavering. Right. So what God reveals to us is true. But then he says the second is, is that since Holy Scripture can be explained in a multiplicity of senses, one can adhere to a particular explanation only in such measure as to be ready to abandon it, if it be proved with certainty to be false. 
lest Holy Scripture be exposed to the ridicule of unbelievers and obstacles be placed to their believing. So the Scripture is true, but on the other hand, there's a multiplicity of ways or senses by which it could be explained. In certain cases, the church has defined certain senses, certain explanations to be doctrinally held. Right? So there are certain cases where the church has, has given us interpretations that we must hold to. But on the other hand, there's many other times when there aren't particular explanations given. So in this case, St. Thomas Aquinas, echoing St. Augustine, says we need to be ready to abandon these interpretations if they be proved with certainty to be false. And we prove things certainly to be false by the use of our mind, by the use of our reason and logic. And, and I think one of the areas that this is the case is when we're encountering new understandings through scientific knowledge in areas that haven't been definitively defined by the church yet. Now, on the other hand, oftentimes explanations of scripture can be held at the same time, meaning they're not actually contradictory to each other. So there's, there's a certain depth and beauty and richness to the scripture that re, really reflects the divine nature, that God has this sort of endless depth and beauty and understanding and richness to him. So oftentimes, Many different interpretations of Scripture can be held simultaneously without um, contradicting each other. So the classical way of looking at this is through the senses of Scripture, that there's a historical meaning, right? It's actually pointing to real events that happen. There's a moral interpretation. There's a way it applies to my life. There's also sort of more theological interpretations, like how it's speaking about Jesus Christ or how it's speaking about the church or the end times or the Blessed Virgin Mary. So oftentimes, these different senses of Scripture can be held simultaneously, not contradicting each other. So a final note on scientific knowledge. Catechism, paragraph 159, states, Methodical research in all branches of knowledge, provided it is carried out in a truly scientific manner and does not override moral laws, can never, contradict, can never conflict with the faith, because the things of the world and the things of the faith derive from the same God. The humble and persevering investigator of the secrets of nature is being led, as it were, by the hand of God in spite of himself. For it is God, the conserver of all things, who made them what they are. So what the the catechism is proposing here is that the providence of God, the hand of God, is also directing scientific exploration. Now, it's making the caveat that the scientific exploration has to be done in a truly scientific manner. Right? There is pseudoscience out there, people who, who are, are purporting to follow the scientific method but are actually working out of some kind of a strong bias or, or they're just trying to prove a point right, without actually investigating with an open mind. It's also proposing here that, that the disposition of the scientists is important, that they are approaching nature with a certain amount of humility, a certain amount of docility to the truth of what's found there. But the hand of God is providentially involved in the progress of science too. So we as believers can enter into this space needing to discern, right, 
right? Does anything in this contradict what's defined in our faith, the moral law of our church, the doctors and dogmas that are revealed by God? Well, no. Well, then has this scientific research been carried out properly? Is it being interpreted properly? Right? Is the is this a truly scientific method being utilized here? And is the person teaching it to me understanding what was demonstrated by the science here? And when that's the case, we can have a certain level of, of assurance, right, that we're entering into a, a place that we actually need to be docile to, that we can learn from it. It's important to, uh, a final point on this, to understand that scientific knowledge is always provisional. You know, sometimes people say odd phrases today like, like follow the science or, or they'll say things like the science has decided, it's determined, it's clear what the truth is on this. But statements like that betray the nature of science itself, right? Science is always provisional. So what's discovered through science needs to be held always with a certain amount of looseness. Even well-proven scientific understanding are, are called theories, Right? These, these theories aren't absolute laws. It's our best understanding of nature based on our current, uh, our current instruments we have to measure things, our current exploration, what we've encountered as people. So scientific knowledge is always, um, it, it's always changeable. Right? Someone 100 years from now could come up with a new theory and, and redefine uh, what it all means. So we as believers going into this need to understand that, that when we're acting based on the scientific understanding, that we're acting as best we can with the best knowledge that we have at that time. This is why the discoveries of science can never contradict a doctrine or dogma of the church or a moral teaching of the church. Um, but on the other hand, we need to be careful not to make a religion out of our science. This is what it's often called scientism. So you might decide based on your understanding that you as a believer need to enter into maybe like a vegan lifestyle or maybe that you should eat like a carnivore diet, an all-meat diet, or maybe a keto diet or a paleo diet or, or maybe a Mediterranean diet, <laughs> right? There's all these different uh, lifestyle choices that scientists and the interpreters of science will propose based on their research. And, and if we take on one of these lifestyles, we need to hold it loosely, right? Not making it another religion, not becoming an evangelist for something other than the gospel. A final thing I want to talk about in this episode is what do we as believers do with uh, the prevailing understanding from science of how the human body came to be what it is, what's commonly called evolution? It's important to realize that even from the beginning, the church did not condemn the view of evolution, but on the other hand, condemned certain ap approaches to evolutionary theory. So this is from Pope Pius XII. He said that the church does not forbid that the teaching of evolution be treated in accord with the present status of human disciplines and of theology. So the church doesn't forbid the theory of evolution but it needs to be held in accord with both the best scientific understanding of the time, but also a theological understanding. What's underpinning this is, is a basic position that um, the question of creation and the question of evolution are, are really approaching two different topics. Right? The, the question of creation is, 
is what's the origin of everything? The question of evolution is how has everything gotten to where it is now? So, so the, the questions are approaching two essentially different ideas. So we as believers do need to believe in creation, that God is the source of everything. But how that everything got to be what it is today, right? that's a question of scientific understanding. That's a question of, of natural discovery. We do also as believers believe in the special creation of the human soul so that the spiritual world does not and cannot follow evolutionary principles. The, the, the spiritual world does not adapt based on environmental causes. But on the other hand, how the human body got to be what it is may be explained by uh, the adaptation of physical things to the environment. But we need to hold on to this theory. If we do hold it at all, we're not required to hold on to it or not to hold on to it as, as Catholics. We need to hold on to it loosely, right? Understanding that it may be maybe um, superseded by a better scientific theory in the future. But on the other hand, if, if we outright in our rejection of all of an, an evolutionary perspective, we're also going to make much of contemporary science obscure to us. Meaning the prevailing view that most scientists are operating out of today is this evolutionary worldview. So as they're performing their research, they're, they're holding that in perspective. And based on that, the different recommendations that are coming out of it are, are coming out of this view of how things are. So as a result of that, if, if we wholesale reject that worldview, we're also going to um, have a difficult time understanding and applying a lot of what science has to offer to us. And what's the danger of this? I think the real danger of that is we're, we're living in a, in a very interesting time in history where we're confronting problems and issues and difficulties that, frankly, humans have never faced before. So our, our, our ancestors were really in an environment, um, I think that was, is much different than ours, where uh, there were certain limits placed on their lifestyle based on just the facts of life. Where in our, in our contemporary society, there's different ways that we've returned ourselves, we might use the term, to a, a quasi-garden state. Meaning that Adam and Eve were, were in this Garden of Eden, the Garden of Abundance, but they had this original virtue and justice and integrity that allowed them to flourish in an environment where there was an, an abundance. So in our contemporary state, we've returned ourselves to that kind of abundance where like myself is kind of like a middle-class person in the United States, although everyone kind of claims middle-class. Um, I really don't have a limit on like how much food I'm going to eat, but I can just start eating and keep eating and I could continue to eat. And it's unlikely that I like eventually bankrupt us or something just by eating. There, there aren't limits placed on my consumption of food from the outside other than just my own appetites. There's things like, example, YouTube. I could begin watching YouTube videos today, if you're watching this video on YouTube, right? You could continue, but the, for the rest of your life, you could continue to watch videos and never run out of new and interesting content. Uh, let's take another example, an example of, um, let's take sexual pleasure as another example, right? Because of the availability of, of pornography, you could start viewing pornography 
and have a novel sexual partner every five minutes for the rest of your life ongoing, right? In your own mind. And your body's basically tricked by that experience. So in so many ways, we're, we're in an environment where there's no longer external boundaries on our capacity to consume what's around us. And on top of that, we're presented with what I might term as hyperpalatable experiences, meaning there's, uh, by the understanding of the human mind, there uh, are scientists whom, um, who create products that they know are going to affect us neurologically in a certain way. And they do this. One of the reasons why this happens is because of the the growth demands of the market economy, right? So a food company can't just produce a certain product and then, well, that's good enough, right? They need to actually quarter after quarter increase profits or else the company's failing. So they need to find ways to sell more product. So if they can get us to eat more of it, more than we need, right, they can expand the, uh, the profit of the company, right? So they'll literally... Um, they'll literally manufacture and design foods that, in a sense, hack our biology and put us in a situation where we honestly have limited control over what we do or how much we consume. The same thing is happening with our media. The algorithm of YouTube is literally uh, optimizing all of the content that's being created based on how much people will click on it. Then once they click on it, how likely they are to keep watching it and then once they're watching it, how likely they are to finish it, right? So, so there's this feedback loop between what's being presented, what the content creators have to do in order for their content to grow, in order for them to be successful, and then what's going to happen to the humans who are encountering that content. So it's a system that's literally optimizing to reduce human freedom, that the person on YouTube will as much as possible click on whatever's there continue to watch it and watch it to the end. So these are just a couple examples to where as we're, we're approaching things in our contemporary world that were not well biologically suited to flourish in the midst of the environment we're in. And I would propose one of the tools we have against this is by, by utilizing uh, the knowledge, the wisdom given to us by science and using it for the building of the kingdom of God, right? If we understand our brain, as well as the person designing that food does, we understand that, you know, I probably shouldn't even just eat a little bit of that hyperpalatable food. I ought to maybe actually not touch it at all. Because once I taste it, my human freedom might be compromised. Now, it might not be something you individually particularly struggle with, So you need to make that decision for yourself, discerning, knowing yourself, knowing your life, knowing your heart. But we can, as believers, utilize the wisdom, the knowledge that science is is providing to us by God's providence in order to live lives of healthy asceticism, live lives more directed toward our vocation, and also be able to then build the kingdom more effectively and share the gospel with others. Um, so I would propose that using an evolutionary perspective, although not needing to hold on to the theory of evolution, can be advantageous for us because it allows us to enter into what's being offered to us by contemporary science and use it all for the building of the kingdom of God. 
So this discussion today hopefully has been good to kind of draw a lot of themes together we have on the show, uh, represent some things that we haven't talked about in a long time on the show, but also prepare for the upcoming uh, season, the upcoming series on food. We're going to be digging deep here. We're going to go basically all the way down to the ground level and start talking about the history of food and, and what how soil and the environment contributes to our food. We're going to talk about plants. We're going to talk about animals. And we're going to talk about digestion, right? How food is encountered by our body. And we're going to bring all this uh, to a climax in our presentations by talking about the food, the bread come down from heaven, the most holy Eucharist. So I hope you'll continue to join me here on Physically Spiritual as we continue to explore the way we can give glory to God with our bodies. Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment, every rating you give in the show. And a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awakened Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.